So first of all, who would win in a fight, Sophia the robot or Spot the dog from Boston Dynamics? So I don't know if I can answer that. I think they both would be good at their own thing, but I, I that would that's definitely something I would like to see. So if there's a way we can make that happen, I'm very open to it. <laughs> Hello, humans of the universe. And welcome to the season finale of the Work in Progress podcast. So this season, we got to know some amazing people who are working on some very impactful stuff with exponential technologies. And for our second season, we wanted to expand our horizons a lot more. Now you'll know exactly what that means when our season two trailer is released. But for now, today's guest is Alishba Imran, a 17-year-old machine learning developer and engineer. She's worked at Hanson Robotics with the infamous Sophia the Robot. She's an on-deck fellow and the co-founder of Voltex, an AI startup that's accelerating energy storage testing. She was also a CES innovator to watch. She's a TEDx speaker. Currently, she's a member of the Massasan Foundation. And she's also published a paper with David Hansen. Yep, that's right. The David Hansen of Hansen Robotics. When we asked her to be a guest on our show, she was all like, Yeah, I mean, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. So, ladies and gentlemen, with no further ado, let's jump into it. Let's cut the bullshit. Alishba, what are you working on? Yeah, so I'm currently focused on, I'd say, two main projects. So I've been working on an energy storage project. Um, the problem that we're looking at tackling is basically testing of supercapacitors and batteries. Um, today, they can take really long, so anywhere from three months to a year. Um, so we've actually developed this um, machine learning algorithm that lets manufacturers automate the testing process by around 96%. So if it takes them three months, we can cut that down to three three days. Um, so we're working on kind of, we finished version one of that product, working on iterating, and then we have a few pilots with manufacturers that we're conducting. Um, so that's been my first focus. And the second thing that I've been working on, um, I'm working on research with Hanson Robotics and San Jose State University. So we're looking at different, basically manipulation techniques for, I don't know if you've heard about Sophia the robot, but she's kind of like the the humanoid, I guess, robot that 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 exists today. And so we're working on improving and, and taking her like her skills in terms of manipulation and the tasks she can do to the next level. So I've been working on a few algorithms and approaches there. Um, and I'm applying those similar approaches to right now medical assistive, assistive devices like prosthetics. Um, so prosthetics, again, huge problem with them is that they're really expensive and they it's hard to, to actually manipulate them. Um, di very difficult to use for amputees. So I'm applying similar approaches at Hanson Robotics to, to some of my research with prosthetics. Um, so that's kind of a quick overview of, of those two projects. Cool. That is super cool. And so uh, I, I guess I want to I want to talk about um, Voltex first, or the your the energy storage uh, testing company you were talking about. Um, and then a bit later on, I want to I want to talk more about what you were working on at Hanson Robotics. So, uh, you know, starting with Voltex um, overall, super cool idea. Um, and it seems to solve a very specific problem. And I don't think it's one most people, uh, you know, just the your your normal audience. I don't think it's something people really think about. So talk to me a little bit about the thought process behind finding the problem that you're solving. 
with Voltex? And uh, how, what are the questions you ask yourself to get to the meat of that issue, to address those core issues? Definitely. I think for me um, and the other people that I'm working on this project with, a lot of us had a passion for just, I think, sustainability. And we were like the questions we were thinking about was like in the future, if we want to have sustainable, renewable sources, like if you think about the prices of even solar, like they're actually much lower um, often than the current non-renewable sources we have. But the reason why we aren't using them at a large scale is because they're not um, they're not reliable, right? Like they they last uh, they the sun's shining sometimes of the day and it's not shining the other time. So we basically just need a source of energy storage that can hold that has a large capacity and can hold these renewable sources for a long time. Um, so we knew like energy storage was kind of the core issue that we wanted to go into. But then again, energy storage is so, so broad. There's so many different categories that go into that. Um, so we just kind of did a sprint um, and we went really deep into like, like we, we did a sprint for two to three months. We broke down, okay, what are, what are the current technologies and what does this current landscape of industry kind of look like? So we broke down the different types of energy storage systems. So, um, you know, there's more chemistry-based systems, um, electrical-based systems. Like we, we really broke those down and went deep into, to, um, like wind. And then we went into, you know, batteries, we went into super capacitors, which is one of the areas we were looking at. Um, so what we did was we kind of did a root cause analysis. So we, I don't know if you've heard of like the five why framework, but it's like, you just keep asking like why until you really get to root cause. So that's kind of the approach we took where we would learn very high level. Okay. This is a technology. Then we would just ask ourselves why, like, why does this happen today? Why is this the status quo? Is there a way we can change that? Um, and so we kind of broke that down until we got to the root cause. And um, we, we at first, we kind of took an approach of just looking at the chemistry, because I think that's often what you look at when you're looking at batteries, right? It's like, what is the chemistry of the system? Then when we took a step back, we realized there's actually a whole value chain all the way from actually manufacturing the parts of the battery to putting it together, to putting it in production. So then we went, went again on this similar approach, but this time we looked at it in terms of the whole value chain. Um, and I think that was really good because we saw the whole picture. Um, and so as we were looking at these different devices, we started to see a common theme, which was testing just taking really long or the testing process just being difficult to understand and, and was very manual. Um, and that's when we, you know, we had, an hypo we had a hypothesis for what this problem could be. And so we reached out to, you know, manufacturers and, and a lot of them validated this is actually a big problem for them. And if we could tackle this or even, you know, come up with a framework to solve it, it would be not only save them a lot of time, but cost, but also help with uh, like reliability checks, because that's something they have to do for testing. So um, we just realized it was a huge opportunity. And so that's how we started working on Voltex. Super cool. Super cool. And I think, and, and don't be afraid to, to get technical here. Um, how exactly are you leveraging, you know, these exponential technologies um, to solve this problem? Yeah. So right now we have um, we've been working on um, an auto regressive machine learning model. So it basically it's similar to like LSTMs or RNNs, um, but the core of what our kind of our, our tech is, I guess, is auto regression, which is 
basically this idea that um, you take, because uh, the data that we're getting from these companies is basically like time series data. So it's like at what hour is, and there's certain kind of measures that they're measuring to see how the cell is degrading or when it'll, when it'll eventually die. So those metrics are basically called like capacitance and ESR of, of the cell. Um, so they're measuring these like over time. And so that's the data they give us is, you know, at zero hours, a thousand hours, at 2000 hours, what are the values of these variables? Um, so that's kind of the model. It, it's time series based. So what we're doing is we're able to, instead of taking in um, all of the hours, which is what they currently have to do is they have to test for all of the hours. So that could take them really long. We're able to just look at the first two inputs. So let's say they test until um, they test from zero to 4,000 hours. We can just take in zero and let's say 500 hours. And just based on the test that they've done there, they can actually input that into this web application that we've built. Um, and that's able to predict the ESR and capacitance for the other hours. For, so it's basically just predicting when the cell will die without you having to do the full test. Um, so like I mentioned, the core of that is autoregression, which is basically uh, taking the output from the previous time step and then using it as an input for the next time step. Um, and so based on that, we're able to predict step-by-step step what the values are for each time step. And and so far, it seems to have really powerful results. I mean, you're talking about like from three months to like three days uh, of testing. That's like an order of magnitude of improvement. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the goal. We've been, we haven't necessarily put this into production yet. Like that's what we're working on with these pilots. So we have a few manufacturers like Maxwell, which is subsidiary of Tesla, we're working with Skeleton potentially. Um, so we have a few companies and I think a lot of them, for them, the value add is if we can just significantly shorten the time that it takes them to do the testing. Um, and so obviously there's been a lot that we've been learning also about, you know, the type of tests that they do and even just to how much data do we actually need to, to do these tests? And I think that's the big question with ML always is, is data, right? That's what it comes down to. Um, so we're finding ways in which, you know, we're almost doing like an analysis of, of how much data can we take at minimum that will still produce really accurate results. Um, and so that's our goal is to be able to really cut this time down. Um, and there's different ways companies are using this. So, you know, they're thinking about maybe for reliability check, because that's something they do when they go to their vendors, they, basically price their product or they give a warranty on how long it'll last. So that ends up costing them if it if it's significantly lower or less. So this product can almost act as a way to check that, right? Like, are you giving the correct warranty? Um, or even during the production process, they have to go through a lot of manual testing. And so that's when they can use this to kind of accelerate or speed up that testing time. While we're on the topic of technical, um, in terms of metrics, how accurate is this model? Like as of now, because I'm, st I think you're still in the testing phase. Yeah, so we're we're still working on improving the accuracy. Like right now, we've built our version one, so we know that we were able to get this model to work. Um, but we are working on kind of improving, I guess, the accuracy over time. Mm -hmm. Right now, what we've seen is kind of a range between ninety to ninety-five percent accuracy. Um, and the way we've gathered that is just through we've looked at. Um, like the companies had already given us full tests that they've done 
Um, so like the ground truth values that we were comparing against. Um, so once we did our predictions, we just directly compared them to the ground truth values. And we saw that for some cells, it was very accurate, um, but for other cells, it was actually less accurate. And so we're trying to dig deep into why that might be. And it has a lot to do with the actual curve of that, of that cell and how it degrades. And so we're trying to see if there's a way in which we can actually improve the accuracy for certain cells or embed that into our model so that it's less kind of having this bias towards certain cells. I might be getting ahead of um, where you guys are right now with the product, but have you thought of like um, factors that could help you predict future outcomes? So for example, what is it about a certain um, energy storage capacity that that lets it have some sort of a lifespan so that in the future when these technologies are expanded on or like improved, you can predict the like the lifespan of those improvements as well. Have you like looked into that or is that something like later down the line? Yeah, I mean, so generally the measurements are are fairly similar, like even during mm-hmm. R&D, the things are measuring are the same. So the way it kind of works high level without going into too much detail is they have certain voltages and then um, certain kind of currents that they set the cell at. Um, and they have machinery that does this. And then what they do is they set it at a certain temperature, right? The cell, um, that that environment that it'll be in. So they set it at that temperature and then they basically just measure it over time. Um, and there's different testing. There's cycle life testing, which is where they do cycling on that cell versus like lifetime, which is just, they'll literally just leave that cell there to see how will the, like I said, how will the ESR increase and how will the capacitance decrease? So like general metrics or industry-wide metrics are once the capacitance kind of decreases by 20%. Um, and I know I've been saying the word capacitance a lot. I don't know if everyone is familiar with that, but it's basically like how much kind of capacity does the cell have to store really is how you can think about it. And ESR is more of, I guess, the resistance that the cell has. So once that increases by a lot, then the cell will just die out. Um, so that's really simplifying it, but those are the metrics we've seen. So we're, we're kind of using those. Um, but we're also thinking about other factors because every company, like I said, has different tests. So as they're developing new products, to your point, like they are measuring maybe, you know, the humidity inside the cell or if there's like bubbles forming. Um, and those can also be early indicators of if that cell will fail. So that's our next feature or next thing that we're looking into is how do we identify those outliers, those cells that kind of just die out very, very early um, and so those are some of the things we are currently working on analyzing. Super cool. Super cool. Um, I think, uh, we could probably circle back to this a little bit later too. Um, but just, uh, just on another note, I want to talk a bit more about, you know, Hanson Robotics. So just sort of walk me through what you were working on at Hanson Robotics, um, and ju- just sort of at a high level. Yeah, they're basically, like I mentioned, they're working on Sophia the robot. Um, and she's kind of this humanoid that they've, they've developed. And she uses a lot of different technologies. Like they have computer vision and they have um, a lot of other like classical kind of neurosymbolic AI methods, which is combining neural network with like more traditional techniques. Um, so I've been working kind of on that side is combining a lot of the traditional classic techniques that they have for ML with um, neural networks. 
So specifically what I've been working on is developing an algorithm that lets them automate the grasping for Sophia. Um, and the way that works is through basically kind of, it's it's a convolutional neural network, but it's a generative grasping convolutional neural network. Um, and really it's just, it's a fancy word for this algorithm that, so they have a camera on the actual arm of Sophia and they have like a, a ton of sensors. They even have an eye camera. And basically we're able to capture the field view of her as she's interacting with different objects. Um, and basically the neural network that I've developed is able to, to capture that image or object that she wants to grab and is able to identify a grasping pose around it. So like, what is the best way and where should Sophie actually grab it? Um, and then I'm developing kind of the command line system um, to actually get her arm to execute on that grasp. Um, so there's a lot of different factors. Like it, it sounds kind of like a very simple task, but if you break that down, there's, you know, there's like inverse kinematics, which is like motion planning for the actual arm. Um, like if you have a certain task, um, how do the joints need to move to actually reach that, that object? Um, there's also uh, like depth sensing, figuring out how far the object is and the actual, um, I guess, grip. When she's actually figured out the grasp of the object, how does she actually grab the object? Um, so that's kind of very specific what my niche is and what I'm working on, but really the long-term goal is to apply this technique um, onto her arm to help her grab objects better. And there's different kind of tasks we want her to do, like being able to shake hands with people or being able to write. Um, so a lot of these like everyday human actions. Um, so that's really exciting, I think, to, to be able to replicate that really onto like a robot that is so human-like. So, can Sophia punch? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen her punch. Are you are, are you concerned you might have just enabled a future straight out of Terminator, Elishba? <laughs> no, I, I honestly think, like, to that point, I think there's a lot of kind of still fear around around stuff like this. And, and, and I think, you know, there is a reason for it, but... It's been interesting because the whole approach that like within this industry, there's different companies and some of them are more focused on kind of the research aspect and just building new computational, building more hardware that has more capacity and, and more uh, like compute. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's like other companies like Covariant AI, which is actually working on replicating like the human cortex and building building that right and the approach that like Hanson Robotics has taken is a very social approach where they're trying to just understand the way the robot interacts with the human mm -hmm. um, and the goal is to be able to replicate social interactions and to understand how humans actually feel around Sophia and that's that's actually a study that we recently did where we we had like people just talk to her um, and like interview her and then we measure like their brain activity and how they felt during that entire process. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of people actually felt happy and like almost excited to be around her. And we've also seen a lot of applications for her in like medical insurance or being able to actually teach people these different topics um, or even like a lot of brain degenerative diseases, like using Sophia as a way to help people. Um, during you know training or, or whatever involved in those trials so we're, we're looking at kind of further applications like that because the goal is to build a robot that is able to interact with humans and make them feel 
safe and happy. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Two questions I want to just building on that. So first of all, who would win in a fight, Sophia the Robot or Spot the Dog from Boston Dynamics? And two, um, we see AI in the news a lot. And so as someone who's sort of in there, in in AI, in robotics, what in the headlines is just um, just like buzzwords and hype? And what do you think have been the actual like milestone, important, interesting things that have happened in the field over the past, let's say, five to ten years? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think to your first question, I think Boston Dynamics. Well, I don't know if you saw the recent video where they trained her, like. Dancing. the dancing one yeah the dance yeah i think i don't know i think they're i think the boston dynamics like they're they're doing some really interesting stuff like their robot is like very very advanced so i don't know if i can answer that i think they both would be good at their own thing but i i that would that's definitely something i would like to see so if there's a way we can make that happen i'm very open to it <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll hit up joe rogan and ufc we'll we'll make it happen don't worry yeah i mean let's do it let's do it let's make it happen um, but to your, to your second question, I think there's, I, like, I agree. I think there's a lot of kind of headlines and a lot of fluff even within the industry itself. But I, I think within, like, I can speak more towards robotics and kind of AI in robotics, but what I think some of the interesting things being developed today are, are more around, um, like there's companies like Google and DeepMind that are kind of, and I think innovating most in the space as well as open AI, um, and there's different approaches, like some companies are, are looking more at imitation learning. So how do we, um, you know, have some human learning aspect within robots? So if you're doing a task, can we actually just get the robot to learn that task? Um, that's one approach. And then I think there's also a lot of approaches within reinforcement learning. So being able to just get the robot to learn tasks over time. Um, and I don't know if you know, but there's actually a DeepMind office in uh, Montreal. And that's what they're focused on. Like they're working on approaches right now where they've literally just programmed the robot, um, to just do whatever it wants, which I know is scary, but it's like, they just want the robot and to see kind of what, how she naturally learns or how they naturally learn over time. Um, and that's another, I think, interesting approach. Cause I don't think we've ever done something like that. There's always been some sort of intention behind why we're running these studies or, um, like with OpenAI, it's like they want like the Rubik's Cube problem. Like they've they've intentionally kind of programmed that 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 task, right? And so that's another interesting thing I wanted to talk about was um, often I think we see a lot of these like simulations, and especially within simulations, I think there's still a lot of stuff that's actually controlled and programmed. Um, like even within a lot of the OpenAI simulations, they actually intentionally program the robot to do things in a certain way so that she's more likely to, to walk or, or do, do a certain task. Um, so I think we're still far away from being able to deploy those into real life. Like there's a huge difference between simulations and real life today. Um, so I think that kind of sim to real approaches, there's a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff there and uh, definitely need that more within robotics. So I'd say those are the main areas, like I think imitation learning, RL, and then sim to real approaches. Um, there's also people working on like, there's, there's a lot of stuff. So I'm just kind of listing it all out, but, um, there's also, like I mentioned, neurosymbolic AI, which is something I was actually working on with Hanson Robotics. And we recently actually published 
like a paper on some of this work. Um, but that's combining neural networks with more of these traditional approaches. Um, because one of the backfires of neural networks is, is the fact that it's not able to generalize, right? Um, but neural networks are really good at like one specific task. So if you can use these symbolic AI approaches, which are better at generalizing um, through symbolic representations, um, like combining that with a lot of these neural network approaches actually gives you a system that not only specializes, but also is really good at generalizing across tasks. So I got, I got two things. I got two things. One, um, personally, I, it's, it's kind of scary, you know, this whole AI venture that the world is on, it's kind of this discovery process and we won't really know until it's too late that we've like we've created something like ultron or ex machina and so that's 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 kind of that's something that keeps me up at night i won't i won't lie um the second one is if i humanize sophie or sophia i believe um i'm sorry man i'm sorry uh sophia so what are some things that she's already good at and what are some things that she will improve upon in the future that you know of Elishba. Yeah, I mean, so right now she a lot of the things she's good at. I think there's there's still a lot of like programming that goes into a lot of the tasks she does. Like you have to program a lot of it. Um, so that's one thing I think we could probably look more into is how do we develop more kind of a dynamic system that's able to just adapt to different environments and you don't necessarily have to like hardcore code it in or program it um, for every situation. So I'd say that's one thing. Um, I think manipulation, which is kind of the stuff I'm working on, is another big area of improvement because I think that's the hardest thing, especially with a lot of the tasks that we're hoping to do. They're very high precision tasks, like holding a pencil even. Like for a robot, that's a very hard task to do um, because they don't they don't have the same motor skills as like a human, obviously. Um, so getting her to you know pick up a pencil in the right way or hold it in the right way and then being able to actually write even or draw something. So that's been like, we actually recently did like in the paper we published, we talk about that, that the setup that we did where we actually got her to, but this was using GANs. Um, so we, we basically used GANs to get her to, to draw like a person. Um, and, and you can look at kind of what, what she ended up drawing, but it was interesting to see how that, that kind of translated over into her skills. So I'd say precision and, and manipulation is still a huge task, especially being able to get very precise uh, precise tasks done. And that's just overall, I think every robotics company is working on that. Like Kindred AI is another awesome country, co- company and actually like their co-founder is a huge mentor of mine. So he he also talks a lot about this because they're, they're applying this into basically like stores and manufacturing so they're working in factories which is like a common application of robotics but even then like there's not a lot of high precision like their their system will work good at you know maybe picking up objects and throwing them in a large space or area but if it's like a very small or delicate object it's so difficult to program that and and actually place that properly so i think that's just overall an industry-wide thing but i'd say that's something sophia could also we're definitely working on. Let me ask you to extrapolate that out a little bit and look at the field of AI, especially in the field of robotics, um, 10 years from now. 
what what does this industry look like 10 years out from now? And what in those 10 years are you perhaps most excited about? Yeah, like, I think it's so hard to predict, like, to, to like, all of your points, like, it's so scary right now. But also, I think it's just a lot of uncertainty with what's going on in the industry and what's going to end up happening or what we'll end up building. Um, I'm always excited to see what OpenAI does because I think they're they're really pushing the boundaries, it seems like, every time with what they're building. So, but I, I think 10 years from now, we'll, like, if I had to kind of think about what robots could do that would be interesting, it's definitely, like, being able to adapt to different environments. If you had a robot, you know, in one environment and had to do another task in a completely different environment, is it able to actually do that? Um, so robots that are kind of more adaptive to their environment. Um, and then I'd also think about, you know, just like path planning, which is another part of, of robots. Like I would think of that as being like very accurate and very well done. I think it's something we've cracked now. Like I don't think path planning has been a very difficult task. There's so many approaches and papers out there that people have been working on for the past 10 to 15 years. But I think it's still a field that's being innovated on um and then like i think just like rl like i i like i'm a huge believer in rl and i think there's a lot of potential i know everyone in the industry is kind of has mixed feelings about that approach but i'd almost imagine that being able to be easily deployable into the real world um because a lot of it like i said today is in simulation which is still very controlled Mm -hmm. so able to put that into a very uncontrolled environment um and having the robot work those are some like very kind of far-fetched research kind of goals, but there's there's a lot of interesting stuff going on right now that leads me to believe we could get potentially somewhere to reach those goals. Yeah, so I just had a quick question for Elishba. Elishba, if you could ask or I guess research one question about robotics, what would it be? So like just for context and what I mean. I personally would love to research, can a robot develop um, attachment? So can Sophia develop attachment? Because to an extent at its core, attachment is just gravitation towards a bias and you can find bias in data and data is what you train an algorithm on. So climbing down that tree, that's something I'd like to ask. What about you, Alishpa? What are you asking? What I would wonder is like around consciousness. And I think there's a lot of, people asking that question, like, are robots conscious? Um, So there's, you know, I like the way I think about that is like, similar to your point, like, what would be the data that we would need to collect to even be able to understand if a robot is conscious? Um, What does that mean? Because I think the the first thing is you have to be able to define consciousness and what that actually means within a robot. Like, is that the same as human consciousness? Or is that different for robot? Um, and then what ways in which can you actually measure a robot showing consciousness? So those are the big questions I think people haven't cracked yet. But um, like, I, I always wonder, even just the, there's a lot of debate around even the definition of consciousness. So I wonder like what that actually looks like um, and what that will mean for robots that get more smart. Like just because they're getting more smart, does that mean they're conscious, right? I feel like those are two different things. I, th- I think that's a, I think that's a good place to uh, dive into our, our mid-roll segment. Um, so 
we we didn't tell you this earlier, Alishba, but um, for every guest, we create a personalized game show. And today, you will be going up against Arful. And so I, you talked about OpenAI a little bit. And so uh, for people who don't know what GPT-3 is, it's a very a scary, effective uh, language model. It can speak like a real person. So what I'm going to do with you two today is put you through a real-life Turing test. And the game you'll be playing today is called Who Said It? GPT-3 or G20 Leader? I'm going to say a quote, and you have to guess. I'm going to give you two options. You're going to have to guess who said it. Number one, man is a noisy animal. When he speaks, he says something. When he's silent, he says even more. Who said it? GPT-3 emulating Nassim Taleb, author of Black Swan, or is that said by the former prime minister of Japan, Zenko Suzuki? I'd say GPT-3. Okay. Yeah, I was, I was going to say the same thing. I think it the way it was said makes me believe that uh, the prime minister of Japan didn't say it, but I could be wrong. <laughs> it, could, it could be a Japanese proverb translated into English. That's why it sounds like a coding language to me, but I, I don't know. You are both 100% correct. That was GPT-3. Well done, well done. One point each. All right, number two. Success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Who said it? Former UK Prime Minister Winston Churchill or GPT-3 emulating Silicon Valley thought leader Peter Thiel? Churchill. That's, that's the classic fintech Instagram scam trader post. What, what do you think, Alicia? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with the Winston Churchill. All right, you are both once again 100% correct. Well done. Number three, like Indiana Jones, I don't like snakes. Though that might lead some to ask why I'm in politics. Who said it? GPT three emulating U.S. Vice President Elect Kamala Harris or Theresa May, former Prime Minister of the UK. I, I don't have a clue. Let's where you go first. I don't know. I don't think Kamala Harris. I've never, I only have heard her say that. But I know there, yeah, I know there has been a snake reference in the US elections. So that makes me believe I'm going to go with GPT 3 just to be safe. Okay. Arfa, what do you think? You know what? Let's make this interesting. I'll go with Theresa May. All right. Well, Alishba, you are unfortunately wrong. That was Theresa May. Number four, the high priestess of fear is sitting before me. Who said it? French President Emmanuel Macron to his election opponent, or was it GPT-3 generating a text-based fantasy adventure game? Hmm. I think I think GPT-3 again. I'm just going to say French. I don't know why. Just getting a vibe from it. Really? It's Yeah, it's odd. I don't know. Okay. Well, Arful, you are 100% correct. That was French President Emmanuel Macron. And he said that to his election opponent. Do you know why though? Okay, hold up. Uh, slight anecdote. My um, linear algebra teacher in Waterloo, Elizabeth, if you ever decide to come around these ends, you will experience this teacher. Um, she is direct. Like, I asked her something about an assignment, and I really hope she doesn't listen to this. I asked her something about an assignment at an email, and she's like, the, the first thing she says, such a stupid question, colon, 
answer <laughs> that's how she replied to me and i'm like okay the french are very direct i learned it this week <laughs> and so, you learned it the hard way i learned it the hard I think way i like that I think I like I, I rather than be direct, but it, it, I guess it is a little bit too straightforward when you see that as like the first line of an email. But yeah, like if I her and I had a rapport, then um, sure, I'll take it. I'll take being called stupid, but you know, that that is your kind of kind of hurt. <laughs> All right, our very last prompt: anyone can win a presidential election with the popular vote. That's not how you win the nomination, though. Who said it? U.S. President Donald Trump, or a GPT-3 web app that generates tweets based on single-word inputs. Elishva, what do you think? I'm going to say U.S. President. I'll go with it. I'll go with uh, it. It seems more intellectual than Trump. I don't know if I should say that, but um, yeah, I'll go with President. I'll go with President. You are both. It was GPT-3. GPT-3 okay. said that. That's a web app. Yep. That's what it wasn't even based off of Donald Trump. So wait, so you said single word inputs and they produce it. That's scary, dude. I said the word election and it came up with this. That's scary. <laughs> Damn. Do you have access to GPT-3 or uh, is this like using a generator? This is a, this is a web app. It's, it's available out there. It's a web. Yeah. I, I don't have access to GPT-3. I wouldn't know what to do with that. All right. Well, I don't know what the score is. I'll tally it up in post. So it turns out Arful won that round again. And this is starting to become a problem. Having one of the co-hosts win does not look good for our journalistic integrity. So starting next season, I'm going to make sure he never wins again. But, Alishba, thank you for participating in the world's very first edition of Who Said It? GPT-3 or G20 Leader. 